I did not grow up in a Christian home, and I did not grow up in uh, access to a church. Um, I went to churches occasionally when I was a child, uh, in part because my parents would give me to somebody for the weekend who went to church. Uh, and so I remember vaguely um, going to an Assembly of God church uh, during VBS. I think it was First Assembly of Santa Ana. And I went down to the Parkview Reformed Church once. I don't recall if I made it into a Catholic church, but that was my only uh, uh, experience as a very young child um, with, with anything religious. Um, when I did finally uh, make a profession of faith uh, around uh, junior high, I was, I was connected to Youth for Christ and the parachurch world. And the parachurch world, in some sense, allowed me to function independent of churches. I knew they were there, and I would go in them, but I would go in them because I was part of a program and not because I was part of the congregation. And so I, I really come from a, a background that is not uh, connected to church as a relational community. Uh, and being both an introvert and not feeling always comfortable uh, with people, um, it, it made sense to me to read from the prophets, these guys who lived kind of independent, or it looked like they did, and they'd come down the mountain and thunder at the people and then go back. And I thought... That made a lot of sense. Uh, the problem is that God, as I began to look at the scriptures, his commandments are all relational. Uh, it's hard to do one anothering by yourself. This being a lone ranger for God, uh, though uh, as much as it's an appeal to American Christianity, it, it doesn't fit the scriptures. So local congregations, whether a Jewish synagogue or a Christian church, are really communities of faith. They're, they're gatherings of believers from various households and who have committed themselves to the Lord and to each other. And the basis of that commitment is the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith and trust in Him. Now, at that point, it can still sound like an individual structure. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12, a passage you're very familiar with. We're going to look at these, this passage as I talk a little bit about are being a community of faith. In, in Romans 12, verse 1, it says, after Paul has told the whole story of God uh, saving mankind, both Jew and Gentile, and bringing them together in one body, and at the end of chapter 11, uh, he, he just goes into a doxology of glory to God. And then he says, Therefore, because of all this that God's done, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each the measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are all one body in Christ, and individually members one 
of another. Now, I used to read this verse, only the first part. Present your body a living sacrifice. And I thought of that as me, as an individual, coming to God and saying, here I am. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking in the plurality here. He's talking to us. He's saying, y'all, to use southern terminology, you know. I, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that y'all pre- present yourselves as living sacrifice to God, right? So that's, that's what he's talking about. And he says in this verse that uh, has captured me for about 25 years now. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. It should say, in my thinking, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of His body. Now, if you put it that way, it's me and Him again. Right? But that's not what He says. He says we are individually members of the body of Christ and members one of another. It means that we are joined together. Not just in Christ, but in each other. Christ is joined in us together. We are joined in Him together. And that, that notion of community is really uh, significantly important. We are members of, members of the body and as individuals, we are members of one another. How do we do this practically? It's one thing to think of it theo- theologically. You know, we can have a conversation with Landon about how we can be part of each other's bodies, right? Uh, but that won't, that won't do it. The question is, how do, how do we live this stuff? Well, Paul gives us that in the next few verses. Verse 6, he says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. In prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. In service, in his serving. He who teaches, in his teaching. He who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is interesting. This is not agape. I've always hidden, or I try to hid a lot behind, agape is not how you feel about a person. It's how you act towards them. And that is the bottom line of agape. But here the word is phileo. It's the brotherly love. It's the affection that develops over time as you get to know somebody and you begin to care about them. It's very hard to spend time with people over a long period of time and not begin to have some level of affection for them. And he says that we are to be devoted to one another in this brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of of the saints practicing hospitality. I want you to look at verse 15. Verse 15 uh, revolutionized my idea of how to minister to people. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And let me tell you what I do, what I was trained to do as an American. And you were too. Somebody's sad, cheer them up. Somebody's overly cheerful, bring them down. Right? That's what we do. Somebody just almost getting, we go, hey, giddy. There's other problems in the world, right? <laughs> Thank you. Right? What's, what's that thing? Every party has a popper. That's why we in pooper. That's why we invited you. Right? Party pooper. Right? That's it. It's, yeah, bring us down. Right? And I have that gift. Okay? And then there are people who will not let you be sad. No matter what you say. No matter what problem has happened. They will try to find a silver lining and try to make it great. Okay? And the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. In fact, it tells us just the opposite. If somebody is crying, cry with them. If somebody's happy, be happy with them. Now, what does that mean? It means that we match ourselves to them, not them to us. Because the person who's cheering you up is cheering you up so they won't feel sad. And they're selfish. And the person who's bringing you down is bringing you down because they don't want you to be happy without them. And God says, be happy with them. This is a real key to ministering to people. If they are mourning, you mourn with them. I, it has been such an important thing for you to mourn with us over Braden and not try to cheer us up. And when we're happy about something to be happy, you, you seem to have a better handle on this than I always did. This is a very key verse. You match where that person is. That's, that's sympathy. Sympathy is to, to be joined with their affect instead of dragging them into yours. Very hard for some people. Because some people are not comfortable with one of those emotions, right? There are some people who think happiness will kill them. Okay? And there are other people who think sadness will put them into depression for the rest of their life. And that's not true. The reality is, if we are happy about something, expressing that happiness is a good thing. And if we are sad, expressing the sadness will help bring us out of it. And so this is real. The Bible's very practical in this sense. And it tells us that we need each other. And this is the purpose of a congregation. Congregation is not to bring new people to the Lord. Evangelism is important, but that's not what the congregation is for. The congregation is for us as a community of faith to begin to connect to one another and to practically live out this being living sacrifices. So I want to talk a little bit about a local congregation and I want to talk about what that is, particularly as we're in the period where we're renewing our commitment to one another as a congregation. The Baptist Faith and Message, I don't know how many of you have looked at that recently, you maybe have at some point. Baptist Faith and Message uh, talks about what a church is and it describes the, the local church as an independent local congregation of baptized believers, and these believers are joined by shared agreement. Interesting. Two things there. Baptized believers and joined by a shared agreement. The old form of that was by a covenant. Okay? 
Um, so I want to talk about those two things, baptized believers and uh, a, a covenanted group or a shared agreement. The universality of baptism as the first step of discipleship is directly tied to the commandment Jesus gave his disciples in, make, in making disciples. He said, go into the world, make disciples among all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if you read the book of Acts, you will see that as the gospel went places and people heard the gospel, they, they were immersed in identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, this idea of becoming a disciple of Jesus and walking in this community of faith. Now, churches have disagreed on the mode, on the formula, and even to some extent on the meaning of baptism, but with only one exception, every Christian group knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. And the one group that knows of unbaptized believers are the Quakers. And the Quakers aren't against baptism. They were irritated by all the arguing about baptism. And so they refused to engage in baptism or the Lord's Supper because it was instead of showing the unity of the believers, it was showing the divisiveness. Those who argue over their baptism those who argue over the Lord's Supper are ignoring the unity that we have one baptism and we have one Lord and we have one faith and we are one body in the, in the Messiah. And while we may have some accents on the differences of that, and those, those discussions are worth having, they cannot be used to, buy, to, to separate us. And so the scriptures and the church historically knows of no unbaptized believers. The norm is that those who make a profession of faith make a profession of faith by their uh, being baptized. Um, so membership in the community of faith is by baptism. Now the Disciple Center requires that all of our members of the congregation to have been baptized as an act of confession of faith and obedience as a disciple of Jesus. Now, we accept children who have been dedicated, according to the scriptures, because we see that dedication as a dedication by the parents towards the time when the child will confirm that profession of faith in their own as believers and will be baptized in the context of that confession process. And we expect that to happen with our children somewhere in the period of 12 to about 16. And so at... 12, we begin to expect them uh, to begin to make their own profession of faith, uh, have gone through the catechism and confirmed their faith by baptism and a statement of faith and join us as an adult in the congregation. And when they reach about 16, if that hasn't happened, we, we no longer consider them a member of the congregation. Now, it doesn't mean they, they're not here. It means that they don't function as a believer because by then they're supposed to be uh, of adult and have made their own profession of faith. So this notion of a baptized community of faith is an important one for us and that's why we, uh, anyone who joins the congregation, if they haven't been baptized, we will baptize them and confirm them in the faith at that, at that point. Uh, I'll say one little word about those who were baptized as infants. 
There are Baptist churches that completely reject that and, uh, again, are doing that argument over uh, why are people uh, uh, dividing over something that's supposed to unite us. And while we don't believe that infant baptism is taught in the Scriptures, we understand that those who are baptized as infants were, in a sense, being dedicated towards the time when they would confirm their faith uh, at confirmation. Those churches that do that follow that procedure. Uh, And so we treat that as a dedicatory baptism and then immerse as a confirmational baptism uh, and, and see those as connected rather than rejecting one in favor of the other. So, just so so you're aware of that. Now, the second part of this is that we are joined by a shared agreement. This is the more difficult process. And I said that the statement of um, refers to the commitment of the congregational members to one another by covenant. And a covenant is an agreement, it's a promise, it's a contract, if you will. Uh, marriage, in a sense, is a covenant. We're familiar with the uh, Noahic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Covenants are these agreements where each party has a responsibility uh, in that context. Now, Baptists traditionally have understood that a local congregation is joined by a common faith, that is, we believe certain things together, and that we have a common practice. And that is historically found in a church covenant. Now, in old Baptist churches, and very traditional Baptist churches, you would look inside the hymnal, and pasted inside the hymnal was the church covenant. And that church covenant was that which the members agreed to, and it talks a little bit about what they believe and a little bit about behavioral issues. Um, And those things become, in a sense, the contract of that local church. I didn't know that Baptists did this. I became a Baptist. Somehow I got in without uh, seeing the the covenant. And one day I was talking with the deacons and we were discussing some things at a breakfast and they said, well, you can't do that. It's in our church covenant. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, it's in the hymnal. So I went back to the church and I pulled out a hymnal and there was a church covenant. And the thing that we had been talking about, this congregation had agreed they would not do that. This is why Baptists have individual covenants. If we were in one of the major denominations, that denomination has a structure that says, you will do this, you will not do this. You will believe this, you will not believe that. Right? And and if you're going to be in communion or in fellowship with that denomination, you have to meet all of that requirement. Among Baptists, since we don't have a denominational structure that controls us. Uh, In fact, when we meet, if we vote unanimously, then no one in in a Southern Baptist church can own a cat. And then we come back, everybody in the Southern Baptist churches can own cats. But the missionaries can't, the seminary professors can't, and the people who work at the boards can't. In other words, the churches control the denomination, not the denomination controlling the churches. That's a very different system, right? Therefore, what Baptist churches have done before they became non-denominational churches is that they formed their own covenant. Now, what is our covenant? Our covenant is found in several documents. I'm going to read the outline of those. I'm not going to read the details of those. Just to remind you of what that is. 
we have some doctrinal distinctions beyond the creeds. We did the Apostles' Creed this morning. Beyond that, there are some things that the Disciples' Center holds to that are somewhat different than other Baptist churches and somewhat different than other churches of other denominations. And there are five of those that we have put on our website and that you should be aware of before you sign any commitment to be part of us. The first one is the relationship between the Torah and the Gospel. Uh, There is a traditional view among many Christians and Baptists that the Gospel has replaced the Torah. We don't believe that. The, the, The Gospel is the good news that all the promises that God made in the Torah are going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, both in His first coming and His second coming, and that means that these are connected. We are whole Bible people. I had somebody um, refer to me as a whole Bible person. said, the funny thing about Dr. Stokes is he kind of, you know, it's refreshing that he... He, he uses the whole Bible when he teaches about things, right? And uh, so there's this replacement kind of thing. We, we do not accept replacement theology. Secondly, we see the body of the Messiah, what is commonly called the church, as Israel and the extension of believers from the nations. So we see Israel and the nations as the body of Christ. We don't see the body of Christ as something opposed to Israel and the people of God. Third, the purpose of the Torah is to give us a knowledge of sin, to give knowledge of the Messiah, and to provide blessing in obedience. It is not intended to give salvation, although it points to salvation found in the Messiah. Because salvation has always been by grace through faith. There was never, ever an intent by God that people would live the Torah, live the commandments, and that would save them. No, God's grace would come to them, they would trust Him, and because they loved and trusted Him, they would obey Him, and the rules of how to obey Him were found in the covenant, in the commandments. Fourth, That there is a time of a partial blinding of Israel to allow the Gentiles to come to the knowledge of salvation. And when that time closes, Israel will be saved and restored. We believe that. And we believe that the Messianic movement may be an indication that that time of the Gentiles may be closing. And the fifth one is... That America, as it's turning away from the Judeo-Christian influence it's had, that we have to live more and more in a diaspora model, in a in this culture but not of this culture kind of framework. Now those are unique to us. Now they're not exclusive to us, but they are unique to us among Baptists and to some extent among Messianic Gentiles. And so that's part of what we have covenanted together to believe and to promote. The second thing is we have a ministry philosophy. I'll do this one much quicker. We have a belief that every one of us is a minister. We all are gifted to participate in the body. Secondly, that the heart of the Great Commission is discipleship, not evangelism. Evangelism is is conception. Discipleship is parenting. Now, you guys have a lot of kids. 
How much time did you spend conceiving versus how much time do you spend parenting? Okay? That's the relationship. So discipleship is the name of the game. Obviously, you conception, evangelism is part of that, but it isn't the end, it's only the beginning. Secondly, I mean third, ministry is gift-based, not need-based. Okay? If somebody can play the clarinet and wants to play the clarinet, they can join us over in the group of musicians. But we're not going to say... We need a clarinet player and just hand somebody a clarinet and say, play it. There are a lot of churches do that. We need someone to teach the three-year-olds who's going to teach the three-year-olds. And then you put somebody who can't teach three-year-olds and they do damage. So we try to recognize the gifts that we have. And we, if you opened a box and it only had certain parts, those are the parts you put together. You don't Say, I need other parts and steal them from elsewhere. So we're gift-based, not needs-based. We believe that ministry is relational. It's not a program. You have to get to know people so that you can minister to them, so that you understand them and can minister to them appropriately. We believe that the family is a ministry. And that that's our primary place of serving God is in our households. And then it extends into the congregation. We believe that leadership involves servanthood. I'm not the head of this congregation. Jesus is. Okay? I step down from my equality with you to serve you in a, a, a leadership position. The musicians serve the congregation. They don't lead the congregation. Okay? So it's servanthood rather than leadership in that worldly sense of the word. And then finally, we're an experimental place. This is not a place to perform. This is a place to practice. There's a difference. Any of you who have been an actor or a musician or a sports person know that there are times when it's about the performance. Right? And so what you do is you put your best stuff up. But rehearsal and practice, there are going to be noises. There are going to be glitches. We're going to have things where we do it and we go, well, that didn't go very well. We need to do it different, right? This is a laboratory for us to develop discipleship. And that ministry philosophy makes us different than a lot of congregations. And you need to be willing to be a part of that if you're going to be a part of us. And then our purposes... And these I've done a series on, so I'm just going to count it. This is a place of worship and prayer, this congregation. This is a house of teaching and discipleship. This is a house of fellowship and relating to one another. And it is a house of reconciling with one another when there are problems in the relationship. So each of those things are really part of the covenant that we have in terms of our doctrinal understanding and to some extent our practice. But there's a second part that is important, and it was interesting. I had already prepared this, ready to go, and I had a conversation with several of the pastors in the association this week because there are about four churches that want to join our Orange County Southern Baptist Association. And the discussion was, are they Baptists? And if not, why do they want to join us, right? And most of them come out of a Presbyterian background, 
not a Baptist background. And the question is, do we try to influence them or do we say you have to be the way we are? Well, the problem is Baptists aren't like Baptists. You know, we're pretty, we're pretty wide open. So the question is more where are you headed than where are you? One of those issues is the issue of congregational polity. There are three major ways congregations operate. One is called the Episcopal approach. Now, the, the classic example of this is the Anglican Church or the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, where there's a hierarchy uh, under a bishop, and that bishop, who's really, that's kind of a, a pastor on steroids, okay? That bishop is the overseer and has authority over the congregation. The second type is the Presbyterian type, and the presbyter is the elder. That's the word for elder. And it's a group of elders who are wise and have experience, and they have authority over the congregation. The third one is the congregational form, and in that one, the congregation has authority over the elders and the pastor. And many Baptists historically were congregational. Presbyterians are Presbyterian, right? And Anglican Episcopals are Episcopal. These three are all found in the scriptures, but they're not found in the extremes of the bishop having authority, the elders having authority, the people having authority. So let me let you in on a little secret. The authority for the church is who? Certainly God, right? Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. How much authority? All authority, right? So, do I have authority as the bishop? I mean, the pastor thing, that's what it is. Do I have authority as the bishop here? No, I have responsibility to the, to the shepherd of the sheep, because you're his sheep. I'm an under-shepherd. I have responsibility to him to oversee you for, according to his directions and for your benefit, right? That's not authority. That's responsibility. We have elders here, the deacons and the pastors and certain people who have experience and wisdom. Do they have authority? They don't have authority. They have influence. They have responsibility. They have watch care over the congregation, Right? Does the congregation have authority? Can we overthrow the will of God with a two-thirds majority? We like to think we can, but we don't. no, the congregation has responsibility. We have mistaken this. So in the disciple center, the, the pastoral office, that office of the bishop, is an office. We don't use the term bishop, and we don't use some of the other terms because they're used by other denominations for that authoritarian model. So, so we don't use that. We just use the shepherd term, the pastoral term. But, but that role of overseer is there for the benefit of the congregation, not for that person's benefit, right? The elders are there to give wise counsel to the congregation. And the congregation has a responsibility to do and to agree and to, to, to question and argue if there, if there are problems that are, that are happening in that context. So we make use of all three of those. So you don't have a pastor-run congregation. You have a pastor-led in some sense. You don't have an elder 
run congregation. You had elders as advised and consent. You don't have a congregation run amok, but you have a congregation that that listens to those who are talking and then makes decisions. And if we all play our part appropriately, the congregation should benefit in that context. And so our polity uh, draws from all of those. So last thing. The third thing that we talked about, these pastors, we said, well, what's the doctrine? What's their polity? And what is their behavior? This one gets more difficult. Uh, what, what, what must a person do or not do if they're in a group, right? Uh, I don't have to do anything. I, I talked to them about a woman we called when I was, first came to First Baptist uh, over in Westminster, and we were calling people to see who were real members and who were not members because they had never cleaned up the roles. And I got a hold of a woman and I said, are, are you, do you consider yourself a member of the church? She says, yes, I do. And I said, well, I, I haven't seen you and I've been here for at least nine months. She says, oh, I haven't come for years. And I said, well, uh, we're trying to clean up the roles. She says, well, I'm a member. I said, yeah, I know, but if you're not acting as a member, then well, I don't have to act as a member. It's a Baptist church. She got the idea that once you're in a Baptist church, it's eternal security of the membership, right? Now, what's happened in Baptist churches is somebody finds a bunch of old members and they rally them up and they all show up for a business meeting and they take over the church. And there are actually places that teach people how to steal Baptist church properties by joining. And then when they get a majority of people, they they vote to sell the property, right? So... Uh, we were trying to clean that up. And I said, well, you can't be a member after December 31st if you don't come at least once a quarter, contribute something, and do some level of ministry because that was our requirement. And she says, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to do that. Well, two days after Christmas, right before December 31st, on a Sunday, she showed up. And she just stared at me. And uh, I said, who are you? And she said, so-and-so. I said, oh, you came in. Now remember, it's not just come once a year, it's once a quarter. I heard you. (laughs) Wow. And so I saw her there all the time. I was there for 14 years, and she was there very, uh, very often. I mean, she wasn't there when she couldn't be there. And when I left, I found out she was mad at me. So I called her. I said, I understand you're mad that I'm leaving. She says, yeah, I may not like the, last, the next pastor. I said, you didn't like me. She says, well, okay. Right? Now, I don't know where we get the idea that you can be a member of a body. Okay? What part of your body doesn't work? And what do you think of it? Right? Yeah, you can excommunicate it, right? The idea is that being a part of the body means that you're functioning in the body. You, no one belongs to us and we don't belong to them if there's no interaction. And so it's important that we fellowship with one another and we interact with one another and that we care about one another. All those things. That our walk is together. Now part of this is because our covenant with each other uh, puts us subject to each other. It means that We have the responsibility, though we must be very careful with this, 
and it is a struggle to confront one another and help one another, not in a judgmental sense, but in a reconciliation sense. Very hard to do. Americans don't do that well. We're very good at rebuking. We're very good at confronting, right? But we're not very good at reconciliation. And even in this congregation, as we've tried it, we've not done it well. At least we're trying to do it. But we need to do that in the same way you need to do it in your household so that things don't become a mess. Because what happens is if we just ignore it and things get worse and worse, eventually it blows up and it blows up on everybody, right? So we have to learn to do that. That's part of the reconciliation thing. But the reconciliation is to be redemptive rather than punitive. The ultimate notion is to move somebody out of the congregation. And even that's redemptive. It's to allow God to be punitive so that they will come back and obey. Now, you know my background. I didn't wait for the church to remove me. You can't fire me. I quit, right? I went out. Uh, But the process was the same. Uh, Out there, God dealt with me and I came back and thank God there were Christians who were willing to take me back in my humiliation and embarrassment. Uh, and in my pain to allow me to heal and to uh, stay. And from that time to this, I have been an active, participating member of a congregation constantly. And I will never not be part of a congregation because I now get it. You can't be a Lone Ranger for Jesus. You can't be independent of the body of Christ and be connected to Christ because this is His body. Now, you can be connected to him in another congregation if their doctrine and their practice and their focus of ministry better fits your understanding. Uh, It's not your job to come in here and change us. It's your job to come and join us or join someone who's doing it the way you think it should be done. But you don't have the option to not be a part of a fellowship. So, the D.C. uh, is a Judeo-Christian faith as our pathway of this life. The commands of God are the guides of that pathway. And our covenant expresses the behavioral, spiritual disciplines and behaviors that we think are appropriate. They're found in our catechism. Uh, Obviously, the scriptures are the final authority, but we try to lay out those things that we've worked through. So, finally, one last thing. I learned from that church where people had eternal security of their membership that it is, it is not like a marriage. Marriage is a lifetime commitment. Congregation is a commitment to be with this group when you're with them. And there's a way that we could address that. We can make it a seven-year commitment. We can make it a five-year commitment. We can do all kinds of things. The problem that we have is, as you know, Uh, Southern California has a lot of people in and out and in and out and in and out. So the problem is, how do we do this in a way that's honoring to God and appropriate to each other? And what we decided to do was make it an annual recommitment. And that from, from the time of the resurrection until Pentecost would be the time that we would uh, re-up and renew our commitment to one another. And then we would ceremonially do that at, at the Pentecostal service. So, uh, the, the forms that we have are pretty simple. There's one for those who nothing has changed in your life. <laughs> I don't need that. But 
You're still on the same address, still have the same phone, still the same, but you're just a year older, right? And deeper in debt, right? No, it's another day older. Whatever that song is. Uh, this is a real simple thing. You just fill it out. The head of the household uh, name is printed so we know, you know, print that so we know who it is. Because if you write like I do, then those members just sign it. You do it in a, in a three-way deal like that. And you put it in that box that's up on the altar. Which will be used in our service when we commit to each other. If you have changes, you have a new uh, email, you've got a new address, Someone in the congregate, you're in your group has been through confirmation or baptism and those things have happened. Then you fill out the long form, right? And, uh, and that's got a little more information so that we make sure that it's, that it's covered. So I have to do the long forms this, uh, this year. Um, we're hoping that you'll put them in, get them in place. All of them are out there on the back. That you'll get those in before uh, uh, Pentecost really should have them done by ascension. You know, they're not that hard to do. And then we will covenant together again. Now, that doesn't mean that if you get transferred in the middle of next year, we're keeping you here because you're locked in. But it means that we have made a good faith effort that you are going to be in my life and I am going to be in your life and we're going to be in the, in the context of the Lord for this next church year and we are going to do these things that are part of our belief system, part of our behavioral system and part of our polity uh, as the Lord gives us the ability to do. Um, so that's what that's about. So let's pray.